Welcome to Freewheeling with Carden. This podcast shares stories of people with various disabilities and shines a new light on accessibility topics. Our goal is to knock down barriers so we can roll through life a little easier and build a community to do this together. Please rate and follow this podcast or text Carden at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. We welcome you on your journey towards inclusion for all. And now, your host, Carden Wyckoff, global disability advocate and wheelchair warrior. Life, business, and spiritual mentor and coach Maggie Kelly brings a wealth of experience, weaving together the ancient Eastern traditions with Western psychology in her practice to help her clients create mindful attention to our lives and a full and compassionate engagement with our world. Maggie is the mother of two children, one who is chronically ill with cystic fibrosis and the other who manages a mental health condition. Maggie also owns the Satsang House Meditation and Spiritual Center in San Diego, is a certified meditation instructor, podcaster, and public speaker. You can find her at maggiekelly.com, and that's K-E-L-L-Y, or the satsanghouse.net, S-A-T-S-A-N-G-H-O-U-S-E.net. And I welcome you, Maggie Kelly. Welcome back to another episode of Free Will and with Carden. I have Maggie Kelly here today to talk to us about being a mother who has a child with cystic fibrosis and then another child who has a mental health issue. And so welcome, Maggie. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. How are you? I'm great. And thank you so much for being here. And I'm really excited to have you. And I first wanted to start out with just talking about what it's like being a mother that has children with different types of disabilities and how that impact has been on you. Well, that's a big question, isn't it? Right? (laughs) Um, My children, my son who has cystic fibrosis is 19 and on his way to college after COVID, of course. And then my daughter is 22 and just graduated from UC Berkeley. So what is like, oh my gosh, it's been quite a journey. I will have to say that these kids have been the greatest gifts and the greatest teachers I've ever had. I think that, you know, my daughter who was born first, we didn't really understand her, the mental side of what, what she was going through until she reached puberty. So Mostly in the younger years, I was dealing mostly with her little brother who has cystic fibrosis. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a chronic lung disease. It's genetic and it's incurable. It's life shortening and and, um, it's progressive. So there's lots of great medications and things now and on the horizon that are having kids with CF live longer. But for the most part, the average life expectancy is about 45. And so when he was originally born, that was enough to send his dad and I both just sort of reeling. It's like, you know, you have a picture of how your family's going to look and how it's all going to turn out. And then this wrench gets thrown in. You really have to figure out how to take a different picture and just adjust your perception of what your family's going to look like in a big, big way, really. And I think at the beginning, I didn't get that Mm -hmm. at all. I was too busy trying to manage. And I thought, you know, I'm his mom. I'm supposed to fix it. I'm supposed to cure him. I'm supposed to take him to the best doctors in the world. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he can't possibly miss a lung treatment ever, ever, ever. 
you know, everything I do has uh, a repercussion of how long he'll live. And, you know, so I took it all on myself. And of course, when they're little, you do that anyway as a parent. But as he's gotten older, I think it was about when he was three, really, that I finally, I it was sort of like in one of those epiphany moments where I just was like, wait a minute, you honestly think you can control <laughs> what's going on here? You think this is on you 100%? And so it really taught me a lot about how I had to just surrender to what is, right? And mm. certainly not stop doing all the things I was doing to care for him, but not like it's black and white. It's like there is, do what there is to do. And that's all there is to do. Mm-hmm. And the rest is not on me. And that gave me quite a bit of um, freedom. It's very liberating to let go of the control which I don't think I expected, but I actually started laughing at myself, (laughs) you know, thinking, you dummy, you really thought you could manage this and handle it and you were in charge. (laughs) Yeah. So, but he's had some rough patches, you know, some extensive times in the hospital that have been frightening, but Mm -hmm. you, I am reminded over and over again, look, this kid's not mine anyway. He's on loan to me for as long as I have him. I'm going to do the very best that I can and um, teach him to be as self-sufficient as possible, which is sort of where we are now because he's on his way to college. A little bit of a diversion because of COVID, but um, you know, to be able to do all the medical routine that he has on a daily basis is very extensive. He takes like 20 pills a day or more. He does two hours of lung treatments every single day. And those that equipment needs to be sterilized and all of that. All the meds need to be reordered. So all of that I am turning over to him gradually, but I've got to. You know, sure. and when he when he misses a med instead of getting angry like I used to, like you didn't do this, you didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Instead, I'm like, you know, I can't be more committed to your life than you are. Because mm. really, the ownership is on him. And it's sure. I'm not. He's now an adult and he's about to go off to college. So if I am always there picking up the slack, he's never going to get it. So, yeah, it's interesting. And I interviewed my mom about what it was like for her because I'm in the middle of three. And no other, uh, none of my, most of my siblings are healthy. And I remember her saying the same thing. What you alluded to was you had this idea of what this picture perfect family that you thought was going to look like. And so everything obviously drastically changed when you have a different picture. And I'd like to just know how you dealt with that internally. Well, I think the part about control was key for me, but I also had trouble and still do with mm-hmm. who do you tell? Not mm-hmm. like there's shame because there isn't, right? It's like if he had diabetes, I wouldn't be ashamed. But like his privacy is important and people don't understand and people are very discriminatory and very um, judgmental. And towards him, 
Well, I think towards anybody with a disability. Oh, sure. There's mm-hmm. there's very little room for difference in the mm-hmm. world. And if you're different, and, and the toughest time for him, I'm guessing, is now as you're an older teen, all you want to do is fit in. All you want to do yeah. is belong. All you want to do is be the same. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you really want that sets you apart. You're not there yet. You haven't developed or matured to a place where where being different is cool. It's a really big asset. And I don't think that our society sets up a conversation that allows for that anyway. I think, you know, look at look at the streets right now. You know, it's very clear that diversity is quote not okay for right. the general I hope not half the population, but at least 30% of the population shows us pretty darn accurately how we feel. And so in the earlier ages, I wasn't, I I didn't tell everybody he was friends with or their parents, even when they came for playdates and such, for two reasons. One was because of that, but also because I didn't want him to feel shame. Hmm. And I didn't want him to feel like I was somehow just, you know, destroying his privacy. I wanted it to come from him if it was going to come from anybody. And I wanted to see how he would rise up and deal with it. But I think that that was a mistake because as he got older, he's like, why do you never talk about Seattle? Hmm. Like, why don't, I mean, what do you want me to talk about? You know? Sure. We talk about the meds, we talk about the treatments, we talk about the doctors, we talk about, you know, making this appointment and that appointment with all the specialists that he has. What what do you what is it that you want me to talk about? And when I came to find out it was more this, this social piece that mm. that because I didn't say much, he didn't feel like he had permission. Mm. And so looking back in hindsight, sure, could I have done it differently? There's a lot of things I could have done differently as a parent, but we do the best that we can with what we've oh, got in the moment, right? So, yeah, it's interesting to hear that you're saying it's almost as I could frame it, at least as I understand, is you didn't want people to think of your child as a charity case, exactly kind of like this this tragedy, and right. I always learned about the different models of disability and there's this like tragedy model and then there's this social model mm-hmm. and the social model I think is what he is kind of being aware of and what that social model is, is how can we remove those barriers and those obstacles to allow the person with the disability to thrive right. and be okay with talking about it and not... right. And when someone says, oh, you're such an inspiration, like, oh, I feel so sorry for you, whatever the case may be. It's like, okay, well, thank you. But at the same time, let's make, turn you into an ally that can be supportive and share right. my message. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. And I think that just now, you know, every winter, when winter comes around, the flu season comes around, and he's got to stay away from a lot of people. And he's just, mm, okay. you know, to, to, to get a cold for him lasts a month. And um, it can turn into a cystic fibrosis exacerbation, which looks like a really bad pneumonia or two, um, and a hospitalization that's minimal two weeks and always in isolation. 
So I guess for me, the biggest concern is the isolation of his life all the way through. And even now, now it's even worse with COVID, right? So he's afraid to go out and I don't blame him. Yeah, even more so. And on the other hand, he's 19. You know, you've got to have a life. You know, this is the prime of your life. These years going into college and after college and in your 20s. So that that kind of breaks my heart. But yeah, um, that you want him to just have that quote normal life that all the other teenagers are having. I will say, and just you know, going through I'm 27, so mm-hmm. I wasn't too far away from being a, a young teenager going into college and feeling like I just want to fit in with everyone else. Right. And I just want to be able to just do all the intramural sports like everyone else. And at the time I was walking, but it just, it was not pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was falling all the time. So, and and there is that feeling of isolation. I'm sure it's much different for him and to feel, especially when he's in the hospital and having to isolate himself. Uh, as I, I don't think it matters because here's the thing that's yeah. different with you, between you and him, is that mm-hmm. you can't see anything about him. Mm-hmm. Everything looks normal. So mm-hmm. nobody would believe you or believe me when I would tell them. You're like, what are you talking about? Ah, he looks so great as if you're supposed to look yeah. horrible. Like, <sighs> you know, if you look at somebody who's got diabetes, they don't look like they've got a disability, you know? Sure. So this is all, this is about that preconceived notion of what disability actually looks like are the public and the social perception of, of what it's supposed to look like. And when it doesn't fit their picture, they're like, they think you're crazy. So I like that. that. You brought that up. It's, it's fascinating because you're right. 70% I think is of disabilities are invisible. Exactly. So then when you come to mental illness, it's the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not quite invisible, but it's, it's not physical. It's not sure. physically evident, right? Right. So uh, everything about him looks absolutely normal. Mm-hmm. Everything. You know, he looks wonderful. Right. So the, the idea that he might end up with a double lung transplant in the next 10 years, it just, you can't even fathom. Mm-hmm. Right. So One thing I, I do have a question about is the medical expenses for someone that has this type of disability that obviously involves a lot of medications and treatments and hospitalizations and stuff like that. How, how does one pay for that? I mean, well, are there health benefits? Is there good yeah. insurance? He's very, very fortunate that his dad's company has great insurance. Good. So until he retires, we're in good shape. Mm-hmm. And unless we do something tragically horrible with the pre-existing condition clause of our healthcare, he should be okay for a while. Good. Right. So is there yeah, anything specifically extreme. anything specifically in the health insurance that you looked for to get coverage specifically for CF? Uh, durable medical. Okay. Because mm-hmm. he has a stomach tube. He has the machine that the percussion machine that bangs on him. Twice a day. Mm-hmm. He also has a the nebulizer that converts the liquids into a vapor that he can inhale. So yeah. those are durable medical 
pieces of equipment and each one of them are well over 4,000 plus, Mm -hmm. which is ridiculous in and of itself. But, you know, like, like one of the things with health insurance, which I find to be absolutely ridiculous is they will pay for the stomach tube itself, right? They will pay for him to have it placed. They will pay for us to, you know, change it out every three months. They will not pay for the food that goes in it. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) What do you want me to put in there? Peanut butter and jelly sandwich? (laughs) (laughs) So that always, you know, it doesn't matter how many times the doctor, you know, appeals the decision and all that. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. In the 19 years I've been doing this, it's not going to happen. Oh, goodness. So it's things like that. And then there's always, always, because of all the medications, he's got six different pharmacies. So there's always a prescription that needs to be filled or renewed or call the doctor about or go pick up or get mailed or, you know, so it's a a full-time job to just do that. So that's why putting it over onto him is a whole nother avenue. Right. And I want to definitely continue the conversation on just pharmacies and drugs and what that's like. But I wanted to drop a little ad quickly for my friend's app, I Access Life. If you have a disability or with friends with disabilities, have you ever gone somewhere and faced accessibility issues such as the entrance isn't wheelchair accessible or the venue is super dark and would pose challenges if you had low vision? Two of my great friends, Brandon and Saeed here in Atlanta, developed iAccess Life. iAccess Life is a mobile app that lets users with disabilities rate, review, and research places based on their accessibility. You can rate places like restaurants, stores, and hotels and transportation based on the accessibility of parking, their entrance, their interior space, and bathrooms. It's like the Yelp for disability ratings iAccess Life is found on the App Store and Google Play for Android. Use the referral code CARDEN, my name, C-A-R-D-E-N, when signing up. All right, now back to the discussion about pharmacy and drugs and such. I guess like, you know, with any pharmacy or with any prescription, it, you have to refill it over and over again. Obviously, this is a pre-existing condition. Is there anything such as an unlimited amount of refills for the drugs or you have to continue to go to your physician? Because four of them, each of those four are specialty pharmacy drugs. Each one of them is over $5,000. So you can't, and he, he alternates so that he doesn't become, you know, immune to one of them. So he does Mm -hmm. one for 28 days and then they does a different for 28 days. And then the other two are always ongoing. But depending on his condition, any one of those could change. So no, unfortunately, there isn't anything that you know he's going to be on forever at that particular dose. Right. No. Interesting. Wow, a whole other world that I, I haven't really thought about, mainly because, I mean, I don't take drugs or anything for my type of... Mm-hmm. I have muscular dystrophy, so that's just, there is no treatment. There are no drugs. There's nothing that I can take. It's just a one track to um, just 
a progressive muscle loss. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. something that one of the things about. that I just wanted to mention that always concerns me now in this light of COVID and you know, we get to a place where ICU beds become sparse and then they start deciding who's going to get treatment and who's not. And someone like him with a pre-existing lung condition, even though he's only 19, would not be as high on the list as someone 19 who doesn't have it. Hmm. That's and up. that's the kind of decision-making that goes on in this type of a pandemic with these Mm. kinds of limited resources in hospitals around the country. And I hope to God we never get to that place. You know, because it's really, it's a physician's having to value, to place a value on life. You know, should I save the 60-year-old who has no pre-existing conditions? Or should I save the 19-year-old who's younger but has cystic fibrosis? And essentially, I mean, it's interesting because both the lifespans there, if you weigh them out, they're not that much different, right? Mm-hmm. They're roughly, if you, you know, the average lifespan is 80, 85. You said the average lifespan for CF was 45. Mm-hmm. So with 20 years, that's... Hmm. Yeah, yeah, so I, that, that, that became a grim reality this spring. Sure. Um, but hopefully we won't get to that. <laughs> yeah, I hope not too that you were able to get the transplants as needed in a quick amount of time. But if, I don't know how right? long. Yeah, if. and if I mean, who knows how long the how long you have to wait to be on the transplant list? Well, that's what's also really not good about COVID is that some mm-hmm. of the ways that they are curing some of the hardest, toughest cases of COVID is by transplanting them, which means that those who of CF or other underlying lung conditions are then not going to, you know, where are they going to put them on the list? Sure. Right. And you give him a new pair of lungs and his, they're still going to be diseased because the the disease is genetic. It's not like you take the lungs out and the disease goes with it. Wouldn't that be nice? No, you just start with a fresh pair of lungs and they get diseased over time too. Yeah. Plus the anti-rejection and all that other stuff. So it's a whole mm-hmm. nother ethical dilemma that I, you know, I don't think anybody saw coming really. Yeah, of course. Especially adding a pandemic on top of it. The only real thing that I know much about CF is I see it in movies. I think the most notable movie that I remember was Six Feet Apart. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that movie or what you guys think about how CF is being portrayed in the media and if that's an accurate description and what would you want to see changed? Well, from what I know of the movie is it wasn't wasn't entirely accurate, but I'm not sure much about it because I didn't see it. So I just know that it's really, it's one of those day-to-day kind of things. And you just, you play cat and mouse all the time with it. And and that's all you can do. It's, you know, it's one of those things where you chase the enemy every day. Mm-hmm. And the enemy in the case of cystic fibrosis is mucus. So anywhere in your body where you have mucus, there's a problem. So that's the upper respiratory or your sinuses. 
your lungs, your digestive system, your liver, your pancreas, and your reproductive system. So he has a problem in every one of those spots in his body on an ongoing basis. It's a cumulative thing. So, you know, I think you asked earlier, you know, what have I learned? I think I've learned that, you know, even if we live to be 100, it's a short life. And um, don't mess around. I mean, make the best of it while you're here. Because I don't know if this is my last conversation I'll ever have in my life. Right? So, and I'm not, and I'm not sick. And I'm not chronically ill. And I don't, you know. Yeah. None of us is guaranteed no one's getting out alive. So, mm-hmm. it makes the best sense to just live it up. Do you feel like that? Yeah, I was going to say responsibly. Um, Do you think that, or have you watched your son kind of gravitate towards that mindset of, Mm -hmm. I only have X many years left. So he still is just taking it day by day, not just sitting across the world to go travel the world. No, I would say that it's the opposite. And, And that's, just as disturbing, right? Because he's not going anywhere. And this was before COVID. Mm-hmm. Right? And so is that isolate. just because traveling poses a big challenge with getting sick? Is that one of the hesitations or just in general? I think in general. I just think I think it goes back to that conversation of I'm just so different. And, you know, who do I know has this that I can even connect with? There's it's yeah. very few people out there. That's why I went into the explanation of it, because very few people even know what it is. There's only 30,000 people in the United States who have CF. That's not very many any, people. Oh, yes. It's definitely a rare disease for sure. Are there any Facebook groups, community groups, anything of that nature that are online? I mean, at least for the muscular dystrophy community, there are tons of groups. Well, yes, there are. And the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is really one of the best of its kind charity organizations and donate 98 cents on the dollar to research for the cure, which is so different from MD and MS and all those others. Yes. Right. And so the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is very well funded and doing an amazing job. It's just he doesn't want to participate. So I can't make him. Right. Sure. And I think a lot of that also could be just his age as well. And I mean, I was definitely in that mindset for a long time of, I don't want anyone to know that I have this. I don't want anyone to look at me differently. I don't want to be an advocate. None of that. And yeah. I think over time, it you kind of, I mean, at least for me, I woke up and was like, okay, I'm actually going to be an advocate. And break down barriers and make change. But again, it's a mindset and yes. you have to be willing to change that. And obviously you can't change his mind to do that. So that's understandable. No, no. So I know you do have a practice for mental health awareness and you have programs and stuff like that. How mm-hmm. does that integrate raising your children with disabilities? Does that help I them I think in it's awesome. Way? I think it's awesome. It's actually what contributed to me doing, going down this path was my own sort of spiritual awakening and 
just sort of understanding that there's things we come to the party with that taint our perception and taint our point of view. And um, while it's almost like, um, it's almost like when you, when you eat something and you have, feel the residual on your teeth, mm-hmm. like, you know, you need to brush your teeth. Yeah. It's sort of like that. Like you come to things, situations, connections, emotional things, all of that with a, a residual like that on your teeth, right? And with the residual, but of emotions and perceptions and mindsets. And unless we can wake up to that idea that those are just residuals that need a little brushing off, we're not going to really get to the true essence of who we are. And the true essence of who we are will never shine through as long as we're coming from a place that has all the residual covering covering up that place that shines within us. And I think, you know, I think for all of us, it's really important to be able to uncover and discover and discard whatever those residuals are so that we can find that light that we all have. But not everybody's willing to do the work that's necessary or has the patience or the courage, right? Because it's not fun and it's not easy. Because some of that stuff that's hanging out is painful for some. And some people mm-hmm. have had some really tough upbringings and don't sure. really want to revisit. But I always say, unless you revisit and, you know, brush your teeth, you're going to be carrying it with you, but right everywhere. Your teeth are going to rot, right? Yes. And so, what I do is I um, I teach meditation. I have a meditation center in San Diego, but I also incorporate the Eastern traditions into my spiritual life coaching practice. So I have a, a certification in mindful or contemplative psychotherapy, as well as meditation as well as life coaching. So I've kind of married them all together. Yeah, it's a nice trio. Yes. Well, it's really, it's important because I, it's to me, you can't, and any spiritual teacher will tell you this, you can't live your true self while you're carrying around that residual. Mm-hmm. And so how do you get rid of the residual? You can't meditate it away. You have to do more than that. You can't read how to do it, right? It's experiential. And until you're willing to put yourself into the experience and actually delve into it, then it's it's you're not going to get there, right? And it's a journey. A lot of people have a misperception that a spiritual journey means, bang, I'm going to have an epiphany and I'm going to be enlightened and that's that and off I go, right? But... <laughs> It doesn't work like that. And you don't want it to because we Mm -hmm. grow and we develop and we um, nurture ourselves and each other as time goes on. So I wouldn't want just one lesson to wake me up. And it just doesn't work like that anyway because we get sucked in and hooked to our old residual patterns of behavior all the time on an automatic basis. So really it's about developing the awareness of those times that we get hooked and taking a different path in the moment rather than thinking about it in the afterward and going, oh, God, why did I say that? Or 
wish I did that differently or mm-hmm. shoot, I shouldn't have opened my mouth or any <laughs> one of those things or all of them. Right. So it's a practice and it's tough and it's not, it's, you know, it's not for the, not for the lighthearted. <laughs> yeah, of course. What kind of led to that moment of, okay, I'm going to start my practice. Was it because you did allude to the fact that it kind of was the spiritual awakening having having children with disabilities, but I guess what what was the specific thing that made you? I think when I when when the kids were younger, when Cole, my son, was young, really young, like toddler, and my daughter was three years older, right in there, the whole thing felt so overwhelming to me. I just felt like I got hit over the head with one of those old cast iron skillets, you know, whack. (laughs) And I didn't believe that I could do it. I didn't think that I had the capacity to endure watching my son get more ill as time went on and then perhaps sitting with him while he died. And I just was Mm. like, you know, I, so the, my old way of being was run away from it. Don't do it. Bail. Well, as a mother or a parent, father, you don't, you can't, you don't have that luxury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can't just run away. Right. I mean, you could run away from your child, but uh, that would you be You could, and some people do. And some sure. people do, but not here. And I started to listen to my own thinking. Like, that is so self-centered. That thinking that I'm leaving, uh, you know, I'm not not leaving physically, but leaving it mentally. Like, I don't want to do this. So I, at the time, I started drinking. And that's when I started to wake up to, what are you doing? Do you really think this is going to solve the problem? And so now I'm not really leaving physically. I'm leaving completely emotionally every single day. So thinking that the pain is too much for me to deal with and that it was okay for me to just check out. Mm-hmm. Well, that has got to be the most selfish thing anyone can do. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in there, I realized I can't do that. I'm not doing that. That's, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to. No matter how short his life or long his life is, I'm not going to miss it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to have a regret when I look back that says, "What a dummy! Why did I do that? I missed his whole life." Mm -hmm. So somewhere in there, and I think it was during that time of that epiphany of "I'm not in charge" that we were talking about earlier. Somewhere in those moments is when I realized that no, you're not in charge, but you're responsible. And you're accountable. Mm -hmm. So while you can't control it, he's innocent. He's a child. You're a parent. Suit up. Show up. Put your ass on the line and get in the game. And that's kind of where I went with him. And he was about three when I made that decision. So then about, I don't know, eight or ten years later, his sister went sideways and that was and I was so thankful that I was present and aware and awake and 
you know, had my wits about me and sort of maybe not intuitively knew what to do, but had some sense, you know, of what I should do to help her. So, you know, I really look back on my life as an early parent, a a younger parent, and just I'm thankful that I was present and awake enough to notice so that I didn't, it didn't turn out a different way, you know? That's so important to show up for your child. I mean, I'm not a parent. I hope one day to be a parent. And this is fascinating to learn about that whenever you are faced with some type of adversity that you can't just drown in it, especially you can't have alcohol drown it because it's not going to go away. It just actually probably will make it worse. I'm interested in, uh, you talked a little bit about your journey and your awakening. I'm, I'm interested in knowing how your husband felt as well during this. And I know a lot of relationships when they have children with disabilities, sometimes it goes bad. I mean, I, I saw it with my parents as well. I mean, they're still together today, but it was really rough for a time. And it was my mom who was leading the charge and my dad was completely checked out and had no interest and didn't want to claim me essentially. That's a little excessive to say that, but um, he just, he was in denial for a long time. Right. And so, you know, how, hopefully it's okay if I ask you and feel free if you don't want to share, but what was, what has it been like for your relationship? A lot like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot like that. That is similar. And it's when, interesting, even family yeah. to family. And uh, it was sort of like he went to his corner and I went to mine. Yeah. And I woke up to this idea that you can't just bail, but he didn't. Mm-hmm. And his method of coping was to over-exercise. Mm-hmm. So at any chance he got, he left to go on a bike ride or another run mm-hmm. or go skydiving or whatever, anything. You know, I mean, it's it's human nature yeah, to believe that, you know, happiness can be found somewhere out there, whether it's <laughs> drinking or shopping or gambling mm-hmm. or porn or eating. Yeah, whatever it is. Right. So, you know, he just took a different path. And yes, when my daughter started to have trouble, it ruined our relationship. We're no longer married, but we're very good friends. We haven't been married for seven years, but when he comes to town, he stays here. So it's a great friendship. He's like a brother to me. The kids love him. He's a wonderful man and he's the father of my children. But during the time when this family was in severe crisis, mm-hmm. I understood that I could not count on him. And I just, I'm like, if I'm going to do this alone, I'll do this alone. Yeah. You know? It's so identical to my mother's story. It's, it's quite interesting that it continues to be a repeating pattern. Yeah. And, you know, the forgiveness is there and, We've talked to them about it and all of that. And, you know, I have total compassion for him and where he is and where he was. He's thankfully in a different space today, not full circle, but, but getting there. Right. And so, you know, we're all doing the best we can according to the spiritual condition we're in, in this moment. And Mm -hmm. that's all we can hope for, for each other and ourselves right, is to have the compassion to understand that not everybody's in that same place that we are, and it's okay. 
Mm-hmm. And it's okay. I always wonder though, with I feel like we're kind of in like the civil rights 2.0 movement. And <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of education and awareness around disability is now more than ever, especially more than when I was younger. And I'm wondering if maybe having that awareness and understanding of what a disability is, that it will make people less, I don't know, flighty when it does happen to them. But I don't know. It's hard to say because we have this, you know, we as a Western society in particular have bought into this idea that if we have more, do more, and be more, we will be happier. And all you have to do is turn on TV and there's an ad of this beautiful woman who's so happy because she's driving this particular car or somebody who just thinks they've got to go get another degree because that validates who they are. And so we as a capitalist Western society, and I know it's not just us, are very much captivated by that perception that if we just work really hard, we'll be happy. And Mm -hmm. we're missing the whole point because it isn't about that, right? It isn't about I need to look perfect and be perfect and have the perfect house and family. Mm -hmm. Because really, I mean, if if you look at all the Eastern teachings and philosophies, it starts with suffering. The first noble truth in Buddhism is that life involves suffering and it's the suffering that is the goal. It's the suffering that is the teacher, right? And so if we could embrace each other's suffering, whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's MD, whether it's CF, whether it's mental illness, doesn't really matter. Poverty, homelessness, you know, job discrimination, any of it is, quote, suffering. Uh, if we could embrace each other's suffering, the compassion for one another would be there it automatically, right? Because mm-hmm. I would understand my own suffering and therefore I would have the compassion for you. I think that's the other piece is we don't, we don't see the fundamental spiritual part of ourselves that is fundamental to I am you and you are me. We are the same spirit. We're just, we just have a different covering. And in <laughs> Sanskrit, they call the body the anamaya kosha, which literally means, translated, the covering made of food. So <laughs> you and I are the same, but our anamaya koshas, our coverings made of food, look different. But we're the same. If we were to take that off, our spirits be the same. And I think for for many of us, we don't see that. We see difference. We see separation. The, the amount of intolerance in the world and even on the streets today shows you that, right? Mm-hmm. I can't accept you because your skin's a different color. Well, I can't accept you because you're in a wheelchair. I can't accept mm-hmm. you because whatever, because right. you have a mental illness. You're not like me, so you don't fit my mold. And it's, it's, it's really sad. It's really sad to see it. And I see it in my own family and it's just heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking to watch. But, but again, I have to go back to the compassionate side of me that reminds me that we're all doing the best we can, 
right where we are right now. I'm not better. I'm just in a different place, you know? So I see both sides and I try to stay neutral. It's hard sometimes though. It's really hard. Because, you know, my daughter is a total activist. She's out on the streets of Berkeley. Oh, the complete opposite. Yeah, and I'm a pacifist. You know, I don't, I don't believe in war. I don't believe in killing each other because of your different religion or fighting over land. I don't believe in treating the Native American Indians like they don't belong on their own property. You know, she's, she's out there screaming for rights, you know, like she's right and her perception is right. It's a perfect microcosm of what's going on in the media. It's the perfect microcosm of the Trump administration and the other conversation out there. The no immigration and, you know, the borders are open or whatever. I know those are very big extremes, but whatever's in between. It's a microcosm of those conversations. And it all boils down, at least in my perception, to tolerance or the lack of tolerance which is why I think there is discrimination for people with disabilities is we don't understand that that person like my son, like my daughter, like you have so much to teach us about life that we are just like clueless to or sidestepping or aren't nowhere near present to, right? We're just busy in this do, 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 be, 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 have, 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 excel, more is better, you know, it's all about how I look and what kind of house I have and what kind of car I drive. And so what if I run you over on my way? Right. And that's the part that that I would like to see change. And that's a really big endeavor, right? That's that is a spiritual awakening, right? To understand that I am you and you are me. And it doesn't matter what you've got going on. I can love you as you are me and feel your pain. You know, in, in Buddhist traditions, they have a practice called Tonglen and it's completely contrary to what you would think you would do. But when you go into meditation, you actually ask for the other person's suffering. You ask to take it in mm-hmm. and then you give them your love and compassion and happiness and joy. So it's completely different to somebody sitting in prayer. Oh, please. Oh, please. Let me get that job. I need that. To, you know, it's right. like, it's the opposite. It's very counterintuitive too, but I love it because it reminds me of this, this practice of understanding and remembering that I am you. I am the homeless person on the street. I am the person in the wheelchair. I am the person in isolation. I am the like person. looking through the lens and actually not just like seeing the lens of someone else, but really trying to embody that and bring that in. That's it. And then is then the goal to, I mean, I understand then That's the next it. step would be to share the love. Is that to make it better or is it more so just an understanding and empathy? Well, and what does that look like for you? Right. So, you know, when was the last time anybody asked you, how are you best suited to use your gifts and talents to serve humanity? 
Oh, like never. Right. So (laughs) we stopped and we closed our eyes and we took a few deep breaths and we asked ourselves that question and we didn't go looking for the answer. Right. Huh. And we just sat in the stillness and we listened. It will show up Mm. because you already know the answer to that. You just think you don't because you're you and me and the rest of us are wrapped up in this idea that happiness is out there and I got to go find it. And it's not out there. It's all right here. It's right here in you. It's in that silent space that's already and always existing. But we're the ones who cover it up with texting and phone calls and TV and Netflix and the news and we get ourselves all worked up and we forget that the real purpose in life is how are we going to use our gifts and talents to serve humanity while we're here for this blip of a time. Right. And so, yeah, it's powerful. Yeah. It's the other thing I think, and you, you know, you asked me how, what really transpired for me and what I really learned is I also learned that look, nothing in life is permanent nothing. Joy is not permanent, but neither is sadness. Mm -hmm. And that beautiful rose that's in bloom outside my window right here in two days is going to be drooping and losing its petals. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't look the same as I did 20 years ago. I've got wrinkles. I've got, you know, whatever, aches and pains, right? Nothing about us stays the same. And nobody is going to get out of here alive. So if the pain is not permanent, boy, that gives me, that gives me hope, right? <laughs> but if the happiness isn't permanent either, then I darn well better appreciate what I have in this moment that I have it, right? So wow, the idea... So there, for Yeah, sure. I think we all think that it's going to last forever. Either I'm never going to change. I'm always going to be this way or they're never going to change. They're always going to be that way. It's just not the case. It's, we've even shown through scientific studies of neuroplasticity that you can change your brain and its wiring no matter what age you are. It doesn't matter yes. how old you are. So I, we could change right now if we want. Right. But I love what um, the Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh says. He says, mm, He's you, great. Isn't he? You can't. Un- teachings. Yes. You can't know what it's like not to have a toothache unless you have a toothache. Mm-hmm. Right. So you sure. have to have the suffering in order mm-hmm. to know what it's like not to suffer. Yeah. And I think that's the more fundamental part of you know, us as human beings thinking that we're in this alone and, you know, my way is the right way and you're doing it wrong. And my my opinion is the correct opinion, having absolutely zero tolerance for anybody else's point of view, if it's not the same as ours. Do you you feel like these teachings have transpired into your son or daughter of this temporary feeling of suffering or pain or whatnot? In some ways, I know that when my daughter gets all keyed up, which sort of is a cycle, when she gets really wound up in her 
cyclical experience, mental cyclical experience, the world is coming to an end, right? It seems like everything is crashing. And for her, in reality, it is. But I get to remind her at the same time I'm reminding myself that it's not permanent. And we're not going to be here forever. This isn't the way it's going to look forever. You're not going to feel this way forever. And hopefully, I think that turns around and helps to ground her again in some capacity and sometimes not. So wonderful. I think it's an experiential thing, right? Like everything in spirituality, right? You don't, you can't just read about it. You can't just read the spiritual texts from some of the greatest spiritual teachers of our time and become enlightened. You have to practice it every day. You have to. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. And I like the word you, yeah, I like the word you used embody, right? Because it really Mm -hmm. is about embodying it. This has been so fascinating. I'd love to take some of your courses because I've, I myself have, you know, been up and down on a spiritual journey and done a lot of life coaching over the years and I've read some of Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings. I try to practice meditation as much as I can. And so I've always embodied that holistic lifestyle and mindset because I think it does benefit my own disability as well. And I do mm-hmm. think that it helps slow down the progression because, you know, everything, your your physical body, your spirituality, your minds, all of that, they're all very interconnected. You're absolutely. And if you're not on that playing same playing field with all of them, it just can really just crumble. So I'm very much of trying to live that high vibe life and manifesting what you want and just listening for it and not trying to seek it. Right. Because you can't chase something that doesn't exist necessarily. So where can people find you? Do you want to give your plugs for your websites and your podcasts? Yeah, you can find me really easily by maggiekelly.com and it's K-E-L-L-Y. And or satsanghouse.net. And satsang is the Sanskrit word for a community of like-minded people join together in search of the truth. And so it's spelled S-A-T-S-A-N-G house.net. That's my website for my meditation center. If you are in San Diego, when COVID decides to leave the scene, (laughs) I would love to have you come and visit. It'd be great. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Very peaceful. Very, very nice. And then I teach meditation classes. I do life coaching, spiritual coaching, and you know, I do four weekly online Zoom guided meditations as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I will definitely be coming to you shortly <laughs> <laughs> to practice the meditation and the life coaching because my life coach used to be here in Atlanta. She ended up moving to a different state. And just because of that, it just kind of dropped off. And so it's been a year or two since I've had a, a real life life coach. And I do miss it. I really do because I, and then I turned to podcasts. So I listened to a lot of Procastillo, the life coach school podcast, which is very well known. I really enjoyed her teachings. Uh, I don't think there's as much as like a spiritual connection with it. And so it will be nice to 
since you have three certifications of that spirituality, the Buddhist trainings, I think there you add a lot more um, just substance. It's just a different take on life mm-hmm. coaching. Yeah, then they're both great, and I'm sure they yeah. are so. Well, great. It's definitely so its own Maggie. little niche, its own little of hybrid. Course. I love what I do. I absolutely love what I do. I mean, people all over the world. It's so wonderful. I bet it's nice now because everything's virtual. Your clientele probably has increased to all different points yeah. around the world. Yeah. I have a probably client never from thought Trinidad. About. I have one oh, wow. from Pakistan. <laughs> I have people oh, wow. from Maryland crazy. and Germany. Yeah, it's crazy. Cool. Yeah. Wow. Well, the I power appreciate of virtual experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Well, I appreciate okay. your time and having me today. It's been lovely meeting you. Thank you so much. Thank you, friends, for listening. Please rate and follow this podcast or text Carden at 470-588-1215 with comments and suggestions. Tune in next week for another disability topic.